Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. So why is Tamar called Tamar? It was a troop ship called the HMS Tamar. In this week's programme, maritime historian Dr Stephen Davies tells me about the ship's colourful history. Me and Tamar go back to 1947. So Dad was the first padre of the Tamar that most people would probably be aware of, which is the old naval base, the bunch of buildings in the heart of urban Hong Kong. And because in 2015 this lump of old iron was found pretty much where the old Wan Chai Ferry Pier was, they were in the process of demolishing that to set out the bed for the tunnel that's going to take the central Wan Chai Bypass. And the Maritime Heritage Impact Report had said there's nothing there, no worries, rush on. And when they were clearing the mud, which had gathered since the North Wan Chai Reclamation was put in, five metres of mud in 40 years has accumulated on the base. It's that much siltation. They didn't notice anything, and they were clearing all that down so that the tunnel for the bypass could go down onto good, solid rubbish. Um, (laughs) The the grab of their little thingy cops hold of something too big, and it kind of gives a groan and a grunt and realises it can't lift it. Something was down there that was not supposed to be there. They send some divers down, and whatever it is, it looks like shipish sort of stuff. And nobody got a clue what it was. And I got emailed out of the blue saying, can you help? Do you know what this might be? I said, well, look, off the top of my head, I would say you've probably found whatever remains there are of the old HMS Tamar, the ship that gave Tamar its name. Um, But hang on, uh, I'll get back to you because I think I've got a source that can show this. It's the emergency chart that the Royal Navy put together in October to November 1945 to find out all the wrecks that were in the harbour. And one of the details on this is a wreck neatly labelled HMS Tamar, exactly in the right position, and not just in the right position, in the right orientation. In the meantime, the guys who were doing the work on the wreck came up with a little brass label about 20 centimetres long and about eight centimetres wide, with some writing on it. I can't remember the numbers. It begins P-L-Y, then there's six numbers, and then there's E. Goodman. And they said, do you know anything about this? I said, well, all I can tell you straight off is it's a British service number, Royal Navy, Royal Marines, early 20th century or late 19th, one of the two from the number. But hang on, I'll get back to you. Fortunately, the British National Archive is wonderfully organised. And within 15 minutes, I got Lance Sergeant... Edgar Charles Goodman's life story. Uh, (laughs) And that put me in touch with all of his family who are spread all over the world. And they're just delighted. And this family, wonderfully, because he, after Hong Kong, he fetched up, having been sunk at Gallipoli, he fetched up on St Helena. And he married a St Helena. So there's a St Helena family delighted to hear about, my God, we found this, this relic. The village in Somerset, where he came from, were just thrilled that this scion of the village, Goodman family go back a long way. Uh, This is a village, this is wonderful. This is a village where about 50 years ago, they found some skeletons of 400,000 or something year old cave dwelling inhabitants and some bright spark in an archeology span department because DNA had just become possible to be recovered from skeletons. They had a, a little sampling and got the DNA of the skeleton and had the brilliant idea of seeing whether any people in the village area had this DNA. Four people did. Mm -hmm. Is that not amazing? 
blade man going back that long, hundreds of thousands of years, a bloodline has kept going in one area. I just think that's completely gobsmacking. But anyway, they're very interested as a result in their village history, and they were delighted with this link with Hong Kong. So this was based on a, was it a plaque made out of brass? Yes, made out of brass. It, I, I would call it a baggage tally. I think you can see it's surrounded by little nail holes, and there's still six, uh, or rivets, six little copper rivets are still in it. What this all led to was a fascination with the ship itself. OK, so let's go back. So the HMS Tamar is lying somewhere in Victoria Harbour. The remains of it. OK, so it was the Royal Navy's base depot ship. Uh, it was given a retirement job. Uh, rather than being turned into razor blades, it was going to be turned into a, into a naval hotel. So it had this retirement job from 1897 through until 1941, when, in the face of a rapid Japanese advance, they took it out to where this piece was found, and they sank it. Now, this wasn't unusual, was it, during the Second World War, that uh, a number of these ships that could have proved useful to the invading military were actually scuttled? Some were. I mean, obviously, one of the problems with governments have got when they do things like this is called the rule of law, something that is constantly under threat. And you can't just go out and sink someone's ship because it may be of use to the enemy. Yeah, okay. Since if you're wrong, they will then sue you. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to pay the money back. And somebody might even find it's malicious damage. So you can sink your own ships. Navy ships, that's fine. That's yeah. the taxpayer. Um, but any private ship, maybe yeah, sure. that's more difficult. No, fair enough. But yes, they did. They did sink some other ships, largely to deprive the Japanese of uh, either forming up areas where they could kind of halfway move people across for a quick assault or from artillery observation platforms. They could use the ship to be able to be forward spotters for their guns to make sure more accurate fire could be rained down. Now, if we go back to... So HMS Tamar originates in the 1860s. That's right. She was designed and built in 1862, 1863, launched... In Hong Kong? No, she was designed and built in London at the Samuda Brothers Yard in, uh, in Millwall, launched in the Thames on a miserable January morning, fitted out and went into service in 1864, the following year, as a troop ship for the Royal Navy. This is an, an anomalous period about which nobody knows anything. I'm, I'm, it seems the first person who's bothered to research the whole bizarre history of the Royal Navy deciding it was going to, be, going to run a trooping service. Up until that point, whenever the British needed troop ships, they would hire them from the private sector uh, for as many as they needed and carry them around. The Navy had store ships, which would carry ammunition and food to the ships scattered around the world. But they didn't run sh troop ships. Then the Crimean War was a bit of a logistical disaster for the British. It was disaster. So the Crimean Crimea. War was? 1853 to 56 uh, was a complete disaster. Uh, the, my favourite story of that is the store ships they sent out uh, with some resupplies for the army, resupply boots, and with the genius that only a government logistical bureaucrat can manage, they sent all the left boots in one ship and all the right boots in another <laughs> ship. And one of the ships got sunk. So what arrived in the Crimea was an entire shipload of right boots. Military procurement has always been a difficult area. So the... what did they do in the Crimea then? Oh, eventually they got it all sorted out by throwing money at it. It seems that the solution was what we need is a core of troop lift entirely under... Troop lift? Uh, able to lift troops from A to B, entirely under the thumb of the military. And so 
we will have naval vessels manned by the Navy, run by the Navy, paid for by the Navy. All of it will be under control. And so HMS Tamar, when it then came to Hong Kong, that was always its role? Yes. And so her first role was to carry, and this is one of those terrible ironies of imperialism, to go to the West Indies to lift the 2nd Battalion of the West Indian Regiment, who were all ex-black slaves, and take them back to Nigeria to fight the Ashanti, who had been the kingdom that had probably supplied their forefathers to the slavers on the coast to take them to the Caribbean to work and die in the sugar plantations. Imperial history is full of these unhappy ironies. Anyway, so that's its first job. It goes then up to the Mediterranean, carries a few troops around there because Britain was just giving back Corfu and Zante and Cephalonia uh, to the Greeks, having occupied them for a while to stop the Italians having them. Uh, and then her next job was to come out to China because in the 1860s, right the way through really from 1841 through until the early 60s, the British military had never really got on top of the health problem. How do you look after the health of your troops? When we look at the early colony, a British colony of Hong Kong, I mean, what were the, the key health problems facing soldiers and sailors here? Malaria was probably the number one killer. Then in the 1850s, migrating across from India with imperial trade routes came cholera, up until that point unknown in East Asia. And once cholera arrived... Uh, since nobody knew really how, where it came from, what it was doing. There was massive loss of life. Anyway, there was just all the general problems of heat exhaustion and food poisoning, dysentery. So the, the, the big killers were, without question, malaria, cholera, dysentery, generic dysentery, and, and heat, because these guys were wearing ridiculous clothes um, for tropical heat. What sort of woolen... Yeah, um, wearing serge uniforms um, with tight belts, lots of buttons, no ventilation. So I, there, were probably, there was probably lots of subcutaneous skin diseases as well. Life must have been hell in boots uh, for these poor people. And two of the regiments which were in service in Hong Kong in 1860 to 65, this led, I got all the data because it led to a parliamentary inquiry. And this has got all the st statistics. And the 67th and... 99th regiments, battalions of which were here, were suffering a 10% death rate from disease. And it was clear they had to be got out of it as quickly as they could be. And so the Tamar was sent out with the relief battalion, which had come from Gibraltar, to drop off in Hong Kong, pick up those two battalions and take them to South Africa, where they could recuperate. Pick up another battalion in South Africa to bring it back to Hong Kong. So two battalions replaced two battalions. And then take the rump of the two battalions who'd been relieved, who, which had been sent up to North China to a more salubrious climate, and take them out to South Africa too. Sadly, the Tamar proved remarkably efficient given that she was a very early steamship and not actually very efficient. Eight coal, a very inefficient early steam engine. The Tamar obviously had a fair wind because she did the return trip from South Africa, lickety split, arrived in Hong Kong a month early, and there was no accommodation ready for the people she was bringing back. So they had to go into emergency accommodation in Godowns in Kowloon, which were damp and fetid. And within short order, they were losing 10% of their men. Both battalions she brought out had exactly the same casualty rate 
as a battalion she'd taken away. And the most tragic figure of the lot, because these battalions, since they were often going overseas for 10 years, the, the record is for 30 years. A battalion is picked up, taken away, doesn't go back to Britain for 30, 30 years. 10 years was the normal posting. That is a very long time. It is a very long time. Uh, often, so, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Tamar service, you're always seeing she's part of the people she's bringing back from wherever she's gone to, and she went everywhere, were what were called time-expired men. They had done their service with the colours and... Service with the colours? Uh, with the army. And it was the job of the military to organise for them to be taken back home if they'd managed to survive. And so these guys are going out for 10 years. And as a result, some of them are allowed to take family if they're married. But there was never enough uh, carrying capacity to take everybody who was married. So there was this terrible lottery where... Some guys got lucky, um, and there, was, there were little secondary markets where if you didn't really want your wife to come along and you'd won a ticket, you could uh, do a deal with somebody else who really did want his wife and kids to come along. And so for most battalions of 700 to 800 chaps, there would be maybe 40 or 50 wives along, or officers, ladies and soldiers, women, as it always appears in the literature, and their kids. There would maybe be anything between 40 and 50 wives and anything up to 80 to 100 children would be on the ship coming out. And these battalions who came out in 1865, 41% of the children died. Oh, that's tragic. Within six months, yeah. And that's the unspoken story in Tamar. She's carrying, I work it out, as something like 100,000 people she must have carried from A to B at some stage in her 32 years of trooping. And of those, I would guess, probably 10 to 15% died. That's a lot. Tamar Sensation, Attack on Naval Officer. Marine gets five years. Pleading guilty before a court-martial on board HMS Tamar yesterday to a charge of having used violence against Paymaster Commander J.T. Radcliffe on the depot ship during the early hours of the morning of Tuesday, November the 29th, Private Stuart Kitchener-Wincott of the Royal Marines was sentenced to five years' penal servitude. The court-martial was presided over by Captain A.H. Allington. According to the evidence brought before the court, Commodore Grace was the first to go to Paymaster Commander Ratcliffe's assistant. The Commodore was awakened by cries for help. On entering Commodore Ratcliffe's cabin, he saw the accused there and noticed the commander's head was bleeding. When questioned, accused said he had only just entered the cabin. The Commodore lifted accused's coat and found blood on his clothing. He felt the accused's heart and gathered from the way in which it was beating that the man had just engaged in a struggle. Commander Radcliffe's bed was in a dreadful state, the pillows being saturated with blood. Wrapped up inside a piece of cloth, Commodore Grace found a brass knob. The accused at the time of the attack was supposed to be on sentry duty outside the paymaster commander's cabin. The Reverend Crawl Reese produced a statement made by the accused. In the statement, accused said he had no explanation to offer satisfactory to himself, let alone the court. He wished to express regret to paymaster commander Radcliffe and to say that the assault was not premeditated or prompted by animosity. Nothing was further from his mind when he went on watch. He had no recollection of his doings at the time, and when he gained control over himself, he was horrified at what he had done. He asked for the mercy of the court. Accused record in the Navy was then produced. It showed that he was born in 1901 and enlisted in May 1918. His character was entered as very good and his ability as superior. 
A number of minor offences were recorded, including 42 days' detention for being in possession of clothing belonging to an officer. The court passed sentence, as mentioned above. And there's one harrowing story of the Tamar. She's coming down the Red Sea to go to Zanzibar and then on down to Durban for the first Zulu war. She's bringing soldiery down to fight against the Zulus. Is this before going to Hong Kong? Uh, this this has been the 18, uh, late 1880s. Uh, so during her Hong Kong time? Uh, d- well, during the time she's coming out of Hong Kong. She came out to Hong Kong 18 times, uh, pretty much in one great wallop from the 1860s through until the about 1880. Then she gets in, engaged in imperial adventure, grabbing Egypt, grabbing Cyprus, grabbing anything that was around to be grabbed, uh, which takes her out of circulation for a bit. And then in the 1880s and 1890s, she's back circling through Hong Kong. So she goes through the Red Sea on her way to Zanzibar. She is, and it is so hot, two guys die of heat exhaustion because of the heat in the engine room. Uh, the news story, I think I, I can remember, the news story has the heat in the engine room at something like 130 degrees Fahrenheit, so they would be about 55, 60 degrees centigrade. You're almost beginning to cook. Uh, and one of the engineer officers who's keeping the watch and being a good example to his blokes, he dies, and, and one of the stokers dies. That's extreme. Yeah. I, it, was, it was a very hard life, actually. And, and the trooping itself, there's one graphic <laughs> description. Some bloke writes in ire and rage to the newspapers in the 1890s about a trooping trip from Britain down to South Africa. Uh, this would be for the First Boer War. And the squalor that is described down below is unbelievable because they're going through really rough weather, which means you've closed down... And everybody's throwing up, and there's, you haven't got nice modern loos and stuff like that. So the stench down below with unwashed bodies and puke, and since they're all doing it into buckets, uh, all the other ordure is just swilling about down below. And there aren't any ensuite facilities. So the sergeant's wives and the, anybody else's wife have got to come from the ladies' quarters, walk all the way through the lads' mess deck, to get to the loo in their shifts at night. So, and of course the lads are no more well behaved now then than they are now. So a certain amount of ribaldry as these poor ladies, obviously probably I would want to throw up or something, had to wait, make their way through lurching and staggering as they went. It must have been absolutely awful. The name Tamar, where does that come from? Sometime in the 1860s, the Royal, or 1850s, 1860s, the Royal Navy decides to be more efficient uh, it's going to start dishing out responsibilities for recruitment to the Navy and looking after ships to the respective main dockyard ports. So there's Devonport for Plymouth, which is a main dockyard. It's going to have a certain number of ships to look after. So in the UK? In the UK. Portsmouth in Hampshire in the UK, the Navy's main port, it's going to have some ships to look after. And Chatham near London on the Midway River in Kent, that's going to have some ships to look after. So ships get badged by their port and it's early obviously decided that the Tamar is going to be a Devonport ship and the river that divides Devon from Cornwall is the river Tamar. Etymologically it's a Sanskrit word which just means river Uh, and you find Avon in Welsh, Avon is the same, it's the same root and Tamar just means the river and it's the river that divides Devon from Cornwall and it got given to the ship as its name. 
If we look at HMS Tamar, as you say, in the 1880s, she's involved a lot with British colonial pursuits, grabbing land, also is used to fight the Zulus in Africa. But in terms of then, does she have a more permanent role in Hong Kong after that? Well, yes, once she finished her 32 years of trooping, during which time, on my rough calculations, she sailed the equivalent of 32 times around the world. So in other words, she went around the world once for every year of her service life. And the British government took her out of service and decided to sell her off, undoubtedly to be turned into razor blades or whatever they used to use scrap steel for, scrap iron in those days. But then they decided they could save some more money by giving her a bit of a facelift and sending her out to Hong Kong with a bunch of relief crews for British naval ships here and leaving her here to be the hotel for the British Navy. Now, this is a very complicated bit of British naval history, but sometime in the 1870s, somebody looked very closely at the 1866 Naval Discipline Act. And the Naval Discipline Act said that you were subject to naval discipline if and only if you were a serving member of a ship of Her Majesty, a commissioned ship of Her Majesty's fleet. That meant that if you were ashore and you were not a member of the crew of the flighty parrot or whatever it was, then if you misbehaved yourself, you were not subject to naval discipline. So they go, ooh, whoops, what an error. Uh, we're going to have to make sure that everybody in the Navy, whatever they're doing, wherever they're doing it, is on the books of a ship. And so they looked around for old bits of kit for which there was no further use, which could be used as the nominal ship for a naval base somewhere on whose books you were kept if you worked in the Torpedo Camber in Kowloon or in the Naval Signal Station at Cape Dagula, wherever it was you were, you'd be on the ship's books. So Tamar is brought out here to be the naval base for Hong Kong. Before that, we'd had receiving ships. The uh, Victor Emmanuel, the Princess Charlotte, they had just been receiving ships. You weren't on the books of the ship. You were just dossed down there until you were put on the ship you would be serving on. Uh, and, and its own crew was very small. But from this point onwards, once you've got a, a nominal base depot ship, everybody coming into Hong Kong is put on the books of the ship until such time as they're put on the books of another ship so that your naval service is always with a ship. So that's what Tamar comes out to do and be. So when she gets here in full fig as a, as a troop ship with sails and engines and stuff, she's put into Hong Kong dockyard where they take the engines out I'd love to know what happened to the engine. Mm -hmm. Those days they would reuse everything, so it was probably there somewhere in China uh, towing stuff around from A to B. They took out all the boilers except what was needed to provide hot water for showers, took out most of the masts, leaving just the stump masts to carry flags, and put this enormous solid tent over the top of her, which increased the internal accommodation space. So a tarpaulin? Well, no, what it was, I think it was made of timber, and it was probably sheet zinc covered. But when they first put it over, it leaked like bilio. And also they got the ballasting wrong. So when Tamar was in the harbour, apparently she rolled like a drunken pig and it was un- unlivable on. The Hong Kong Telegraph, July 2nd, 1897. We hear that the Tamar is not to be compared with the ancient Victor Emmanuel in the matter of comfort. During the wet weather experienced of late, her new roof has started leaking for some unexplained reason, and although the sea has not been particularly heavy in the harbour, she has several times started rolling in a manner that bodes ill for her crew should a typhoon come along. 
The Tamar is not completed yet, so we hope that her new roof will be made watertight and a little ballast to be added before she actually takes the place of the old Victor. The beam of the Tamar is less than that of the Victor, and this probably has a deal to do with her rolling. She'll roll like a harpooned whale when a typhoon happens along. So she was a, a year late into service as the nominal depot ship, by which time the Victor Emmanuel, which was kind of standing in here, was only being kept afloat by faith because apparently she was rotten to the core. And anyway, Tamar finally makes it, and she becomes then this floating base for the Royal Navy. So just how big was she? She was 95 metres long, uh, about 17 metres from keel to the top of the tent. She was, she was big, three decks, um, had lots of space. And how many Navy personnel could be accommodated there? When she was in her trooping days, she was built for 200 crew, 210 crew, and a trooping complement when you were really squeezing things of about 1,200. Uh, so she could carry 1,200 soldiers. Normally she'd carry about between 700 and 1,000, depending on whether it was a long trip or a short trip. Hong Kong Daily Press, August 5th, 1909. The Tamar in dock. It was noticed yesterday that there was quite a blank in the harbour. The Tamar had been removed from her moorings and taken to the Kowloon docks to undergo a necessary overhaul. She'll be in dock, it is expected, for five days. It is several years since she docked before. An interesting feature of her removal was that she was followed by a shoal of fish families, which had lived near her and enjoyed the fare which came overboard. The fish followed the Tamar to Hong Hom, where the shutting of the dock gates left them an easy catch for those on the lookout. Your father was the padre at HMS Tamar. We're jumping forward a few decades in 1947. Is that when you were born? No, no, I was born in 1945 uh, and, and christened in the ship's bell of one of Britain's largest battleships, HMS Rodney, in the Firth of Forth. What happened is, in 1941, having served its time as the depot ship, under two threats of execution, in 1913, she was going to be sold off and turned into razor blades. And then the, the First World War happened, so that didn't happen. Then in 1938, the same thing was going to happen to her. She was going to be taken away, turned into razor blades, and the Second World War happens. Only this time, it's no stay of execution. It's the ex execution proper, because that's when she's taken out and sunk off one shine. So what would be involved if you, if you were... I mean, we, we said, you know, I was asking about scuttling ships earlier, mm. but how do you sink a ship? It was an interesting little problem for them. Because it's not a small ship. No, and you just don't just open the taps. Their original plan was to torpedo it. So they sent a message to Lieutenant Kilby of uh, second motor torpedo boat flotilla in Aberdeen uh, on the evening of the 18th of December, 1941, saying, uh, Torpedo HMS Tamar, which will be on Naval Boy number 10 in one chai. Go. So he rocks down with his lads to his torpedo boat and thunders out of Aberdeen to come into Hong Kong Harbour which is full of flying bullets and it's dark and it's all pretty messy, uh, heading for HMS Tamar. Meanwhile, they decided that this probably wasn't a frightfully reliable way of sinking the Tamar, so they sent a message to Lieutenant Kilby saying, stop. Unfortunately, he'd left, so he couldn't stop. So he heads off and charges into Tamar, loses one torpedo, which he didn't see where that went, and loosed the second torpedo, which missed, at which time life was getting too hot, so he turned round, hightailed it, got back home where he was met by an irate naval officer saying, ha, ha, thank God you're back. Do you sink the Tamar? And he said, no, no, I missed. He said, thank God for that. Because what they'd done is they'd sent a demolition party. 
So, yeah. I mean, if we just say December 18th, 1941, you've got, uh, you know, the Japanese military has been moving uh, down from its initial invasion on December the 8th, 1941. It's come down through Kowloon. And, and so by December the 12th, it's fully installed in Kowloon. Hong Kong is besieged on Hong Kong Island. So Victoria Harbour's a battle zone. And Kilby and co are rushing backwards and forwards, being shot at, uh, trying in the dark, no light, to torpedo a ship they can barely see. Meanwhile, onto the ship has climbed the thing that's going to work, which is a party with explosive charges, which they place in the ship's bottom, put the detonators on them, rush up topsides, leap over into the boat that brought them and thin out, and then there's two big loud crumps and holes are blown in the bottom of the Tamar and glug, 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 down she goes. Unfortunately, uh, although glug, 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 down she went, she didn't go down far enough because that big fixed tent that you see in all the pickies of Tamar trapped air underneath it. They'd fixed the leaks really well, so now it didn't even leak air. So come the morning of the 19th, there's this bunch of tent sticking up out the water. So the Hong Kong and Singapore Royal Artillery asked to open fire on the poor old Tamar, which is finally sunk from friendly fire into, into the mud of Wan Chai. My thanks to Stephen Davies, Honorary Institute Fellow of the Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.